Well, good morning. Glad to be with you all this morning. My name is Chris Thompson. I'm the campus pastor here at Grace Bible Creekside. And if I have not had the privilege of getting to meet you, I look forward to maybe getting to meet you afterwards. We are having popsicles in the park right after this. So hopefully we can uh, spend a little time getting to know each other in the park. Look forward to that. This morning we're going to be studying Psalm chapter 42. If you want to go ahead and make your way there, I'm going to just jump right in, all right? This is the first two verses. We're going to look at this together. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants, so yearns my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This unknown psalmist begins this psalm with an amazing metaphor, a beautiful picture of this deer coming to the flowing streams and panting, thirsting for the water that is going to satisfy and and give that deer what it needs. And he makes this illusion, this, this physical reality mirrors a spiritual truth for all of us, right? That take the deer out of the picture and let's expand it to all living creatures. Let's expand it to talk about us as human beings, we all need water, right? We need water at our very basic core molecular level. We are made of what, Margaret, 70% water, something like that. She's a nurse, she knows. And so that, that being said is that we absolutely have to have water in order for our bodies to function, in order for us to live, for survival. Take that physical reality It mirrors the spiritual truth about us and God, that we need God. We need him for our very existence. We need him for our survival. We need him, period. Now, there are different times in life when we experience and we recognize our need for water, sometimes more desperately than others, right? When you decide to go mowing the lawn, and I thought yesterday morning I would mow the lawn and try to beat the heat, whatever that means, in hot Texas sun, and go out there in the morning. But <laughs> much to my chagrin, it was already in the 90s by the time I got outside. And so, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to wake up the neighbors if you try to mow at 3 in, three in the morning. So, uh, you know, I had, to, I had to do what I had to do. And I mowed the lawn, and I wasn't even out of the garage yet. And I was already profusely sweating. And by the time I was done with the morning activity, and I don't have a very big yard, my clothes were drenched, right? That's this experience for all of us. Forget mowing the lawn, just go check the mail, and you're, you're just, you know, sweating like crazy. That's just Texas for you in the, the hot summer sun. But contrast that to, I was in Alaska, actually, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, six of us from Grace Bible went up to Alaska to serve Julie Blum, one of our Grace-supported missionaries, and uh, many, many of you know she lost her husband and her two youngest children in a plane crash last December. And while we were there, we got to serve her, doing a lot of different work projects around her house and caring for her, just ministering to her by just doing some real practical things. And it was a great experience, really wonderful time to be with her and to get to do those things. But one of the other benefits of being in Alaska during the summer is you get to escape the Texas heat. And we enjoyed 50 and 60 degree weather. Uh, there was one day I actually put on short sleeves, uh, but the rest of the time we we're pretty much in long sleeves. But contrast those two climates. You think about the hot Texas humid day and you sweat. 
and you feel and you sense and you know very, very keenly aware of your desperate need for water, right? But then you go to Alaska and it's 50s and 60s and you don't realize you still need water because you're not sweating at the level and the intensity that you are back in Texas. But the reality is, is that you're still in that dry mountain air and it's dehydrating you and you still need water. And it was something that kind of snuck up and bit me a couple of times. I realized I'm going and going and, and working. And oftentimes we would work deep into the evening, eight, nine, ten o'clock at night because the sun never really sets. And so we're, you know, we're experiencing daylight. We kind of forget what time it is and we're trying to get all these things done. And we realized, oh my goodness, I haven't really drank any water in a long time. And I'm feeling, feeling the exhaustion and the, and the results of that. So regardless of the climate, we realize you need water. Our bodies have to have it. And let's take that parallel to our reality with God. Oftentimes we're in a place, in a circumstance where we desperately need God. We recognize our very real and true need in a very tangible way. But then there's other times in life where it's maybe not so evident or maybe it's just not at the forefront of our hearts, our lives, our minds. And oftentimes what happens, let's go back to the parallel of the water. When we don't necessarily sense our need for water, we maybe we're kind of thirsty, you know, kind of something to drink. So we go to the fridge, but we're not like just dying of thirst. And so we'll go and we'll look for the options. You know, we'll, we'll open up the fridge and say, ah, what do I want to drink now? You know, ah, water's kind of boring. And so we move past that and we say, Oh, I got some juice, got some milk, got some sodas. We got my, my personal favorite, root beer. Matt Chalmers, where you at? I know we got some root beer connoisseurs in the room. But uh, anyways, the soda that I might drink, I might imbibe, is a lot of fun. It's sugary sweet, and it's going to be refreshing, you know, if it's coming from the fridge. It's going to be cold. But just imagine what would happen if after I mowed the lawn yesterday... And I've dehydrated my body all onto my pants and my shirt. And I decide to go and drink a root beer. And I just pound that thing. And I, I, I drink the entire bottle. You know it's going to taste good. And it might satisfy for a brief second. But the reality is, as you all know, that sodas really don't rehydrate you to the level that you need. Your body needs water. And so I would be thirsty still. And I would need another one, and another one, and another one. And, and I would continue to be on this pattern until I wake up and realize I really just need to drink some water because that's what my body desperately needs right now. So it is with God. Oftentimes what we'll do is we'll take God out of the position in our hearts that he alone needs to be in, and we'll put other things in our life that are inferior, that do not satisfy us the way that the Lord can. And what we'll do is we will replace him and we'll put these other idols in our hearts that should not be there, but oftentimes we place them there because we think that they're going to satisfy. We think they're going to give us what we need or what we want. And the reality is that it's not going to give us what we need. So what we want to do this morning is we want to try to Leverage this parallel. As we need water, so we need God. 
and we want to use this this morning to talk about the idols that we may place in our hearts. And as we move through the psalmist's experience that he writes about in Psalm 42, we want to kind of leverage some of his experiences to extrapolate what we also experience, just the kind of a human experience to talk about these things, these substitutes, these faulty idols that we place in our hearts that we think are going to be satisfying. But reality is, is that only God can satisfy at our heart and our soul's deepest levels. So let's move forward into and seeing what the context is for the psalmist. He says in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? You see, this psalm is it's not a really happy psalm. It's a tough one. It's a difficult one. And I would love to even spend another sermon at some other time talking about the levels of desperation and even the depression that this psalmist is experiencing. But we won't go there this morning. But we do want to recognize that he is in a dark place. He's in a desperate place. He cries out to God. Furthermore, in verse 6, we see some of the geographical context that our psalmist is experiencing. He says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Now, Mount Mazar is not actually on any of our atlases. Uh, we don't exactly know where that, that ancient mount is. And so what we do have, though, is we know where the Jordan is. We know where the source of the Jordan. We know where the Hermans are. Here's a picture of the Hermon Mountains. And this is actually at the border of Syria and Lebanon, very far north from Jerusalem. In fact, it's probably, probably about 100, 120, maybe plus miles from Jerusalem. So if you think about how far that is from where our psalmist may have originated from Jerusalem, that's a long ways to have traveled by foot or by donkey. That's a long ways from home to be at Mount Hermon and to be away from your homeland, away from the things that you know He goes on to talk more about his past in verse 4. He says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and multitude-keeping festival. Now, the psalmist is having a, a flashback sequence here. He's having a moment to remember some things, some, some blessed memories in his past. And he thinks back to his time where I want you to key in on one word here, where he would lead, lead them in procession to the house of God. You see, he's remembering and recalling back to a time that he had a position of authority, a position of leadership where he would lead the people in procession to the house of God. And if you look at the, the little subscript of the intro of Psalm 42, it says, a, to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. If you think about this, if you go back in your Old Testament history, the Levites were a tribe that were set apart for all things pertaining to the worship, the sacrifice in the tabernacle and in the temple. All right? Now, the descendants of Levi were one being Korah. And if you want some really interesting history, go back to Numbers chapter 16 in your free reading time, and you'll see some Indiana Jones-style experiences that Korah and his family had. But uh, that's kind of beside the point. I just thought I'd throw that little nugget out there. That one was free. And so 
Korah, the sons of Korah, actually, they were set apart as the worship leaders. Many of them were skilled musicians that they would be the ones that were in charge of leading the people in musical worship. So the Olsey family that led us in worship this morning, that would be classified as, you know, descendants of Korah if they had lived back in that day. They would have been the ones leading the people in the musical worship at the house of God. So that's what this psalmist, his past, his position is, has, or it was, for the people of God. And now he is far, far from home, far from the house of God, up in the mountains where he is in that desperate, dark place. Well, let's take a moment to fast forward to our time, to our place. And let's talk a little bit about these idols of the heart that we oftentimes put in the place of God, these things that we idolize, that we grab hold of, we cling to, that cause us to replace God, to dethrone God in our hearts, in our lives. And the first one that I want to talk about is our position, our position in life. It may be that you are um, a doctor a lawyer, a professor, a teacher, a stay-at-home mom, whatever your position is in life, whatever you have identified yourself as, oftentimes, you know, it's kind of funny in our American culture, we introduce ourselves, we say, hi, how you doing? What do you do? And we, I, we readily identify ourselves with what we do. But I want us to be careful. I want us to be very careful about the idea of finding our identity in what we do. I want us to be very careful about finding our self-worth in how well we perform in our particular position. If you're a, a mom, you might find a lot of value in the way that you keep your house and you take care of all of the, the home-making activities and keeping your family and Heaven forbid you actually find identity in how well your kids behave or something like that. But all of those things can cause us to find self-worth, unfortunately, in the wrong way, in the wrong place, in the wrong... And so we might think of the ways that we find our self-worth in our performance as a teacher, for myself as a pastor. I might even be looking for... Um, my self-worth and how well I actually present this sermon this morning. And that would be atrocious. That would be poor because I could, I could nail it or I could just totally bomb it. And, and either way, the reality is my identity is not found in how well I perform or my position as your pastor. Because those things, that, you know, can be all over the map. Our... Uh, our identity is not found in what we do. And, you know, I, I give mental assent to this all day long. And I, I can even preach it all day long. But I, I need to admit to you guys that I'm probably the chief of sinners as it relates to understanding and really understanding, really knowing at my heart level, not just a mind level, but at a heart level about how to find my self-worth. And it's not in my position. I know that. But so much of the time, I, I mix it up. I convolute it. And I think, oh man, I need to do this just right. Or, 
you know, or, you know, what good am I? This all came to a real reality check several years ago. Let me give you a little past history here. Just for many of you, you may not know that I actually was a youth pastor in my previous life before I came to Grace as a campus pastor. And I was actually uh, doing youth ministry for three years here at Grace Bible back in 97 and 2000. And then we moved to Dallas, my wife and I, and, and we got plugged into a church there called Wood Creek Church. And I was the youth pastor there for 15 years. And I prided myself in the longevity that I spent at one particular church. I prided myself in the longevity that I had in one particular, one particular role. Because youth pastors, they kind of they have this reputation for being in and out like 18 months is kind of their average tenure. And so I love the fact that I had been able to pour into families and students for a whole generation of students. And it was wonderful. And I loved being able to spend a lot of time with them. Well, June 7th, 2014 will live as a day of infamy, infamy in my heart, my life, and my family's life. Because we were, I was going into another exciting summer in which I, as a youth pastor, the summers are high season. That's when the, the kids are out of school and we're going to hang out. We're going to do lots of great events, mission trips, road trips, all kinds of stuff that we're going to be, I'm just going to be spending all this kind of time with students and pouring into them. So on June 7th, I was spending some time with one of my, two couple of my really good friends. One was a student. He was a junior in high school and one was one of our leaders. Their both names were Ben. And we were out mountain biking uh, at some trails near our home in Dallas. And I decided to go on this really intense trail that they kind of opted out of. But we'd all ridden it at one time or another. But it's, it, it's super intense, like a double black diamond drop in. And you go down and kind of go through some trees, cross a creek and go up this bank and, and over to the other side. Well, I don't know what happened because I don't remember. But I somehow went flying over the handlebars, over the creek, and landed on my face on the other side. The guys that were with me, they thought I broke my neck the way that I impacted and just kind of crumpled into the bank. And so I was rushed the ER and uh, the, the Lord was really good to me. The Lord was really, really gracious. Because in the process of, of uh, kind of figuring out what's going on, uh, they did several scans. I, had, I did not break a single bone. And even though I had 38 stitches in my face, lacerations under my eye, and big old gash in my lip, uh, I didn't chip a tooth, scratch an eye, not a single bone broken. But God was also good in that after I got all those stitches and they were about to release me from the ER, I was in the wheelchair and I slumped over, unresponsive. And so the doctor said, hmm, better run some more tests. So got an angiogram and soon discovered that I had torn my carotid artery. I had actually dissected the internal layer of my left carotid. And so, of course, they rushed me straight to CCU for stroke watch and all kinds of other Stuff And, of course, my wife and I were, were pretty scared, pretty freaked out by what is going on here and what does this mean. Well, several days in the hospital, and they finally released me to say, you basically are not doing anything for three months. You're on bed rest, essentially, modified bed rest, right? You can walk around, but don't lift anything heavier than a gallon of milk. Don't stress, don't strain, don't, don't throw up. 
because they didn't want any kind of blood surging up through that artery that it might cause a stroke, aneurysm, all kinds of complications. Well, you got to remember, you guys, I'm a youth pastor, and this is June 7th, and it's high season, and you're telling me I can't do anything? I was supposed to go to graduation parties that very weekend. I was supposed to officiate a wedding of a former student the following Saturday. And then the Sunday after that, I was going to be taking our high school kids to Mexico for a mission trip. And then the following weekend after that, I was going to Arkansas with our freshmen. And I had this whole summer planned out with all these activities and things. And we were going to do ministry. Done. Grounded. Nope. You're not going to do anything. You're going to sit on the couch And even with all the drugs in my system, I couldn't even email effectively. I I mean, I was literally felt worthless. But it was an incredible time. It was scary. I, I, I will admit that. But looking back on it, it was an incredible time for God to get my attention and say, your value does not rest in how productive you are in your position. Your self worth is not based on your position or your ability to spend time with students or any of those things, you need to stop. Reality check. It was, it was really intense, but it was really powerful for the Lord to work that moment in my heart to be able to get me to stop, stop striving for performance, stop striving in my position and to rest in him, to reflect on these things and the way that I had made my position an idol in my heart. And I still struggle with it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not over it. It's been three years, but the reality is, is that it's a something that I want to constantly check in my heart and get God back in that place that only he deserves because I know that only he can satisfy me the goals that I might devise in my heart, in my position, or the performance that I might try to be seeking out, those, those things are elusive, and it's never going to satisfy. It's kind of like drinking that soda after you just mowed the lawn on a, tech, a hot Texas summer day. And it, and it might feel good for a second, but you continue to need more and more and more and realizing that's never, ever going to satisfy So our position is one of those idols that we make in our hearts. Let's move forward in the psalm. Psalm 42, 7 says this, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Now, this is reminiscent. If you you look at this, you think about uh, water coming, streaming, flowing. It's constant. I actually have a picture of Tenalian Falls. These are falls near Julie's house in Alaska. It was about a 30, 40 minute hike from her house that we went to the last night that we were there. And I, I just sat there and just, just marveled at the beautiful falls and contemplated as I, as I walked up on those rocks actually near the falls and I saw these, this water just rushing past and thought, it doesn't stop. There is no switch that turns this thing off. This glacial melt-off is just, it's coming. And these thousands and thousands of gallons of water that are rushing by every single moment is just absolutely mind-blowing to think about. 
But sometimes that actually is reflective of our circumstances in life, isn't it? How sometimes we feel like we're just being hit over and over and over again. You think about standing on the beach at the ocean and the waves coming in. They don't stop. They're relentless. They continue to come. And sometimes that's the way that life could feel like in our circumstances. Sometimes we feel like we're getting beat up. Sometimes, alternatively, we may be in a good place. Maybe sometimes we're, we're in a desperate place where we are just, the waves keep coming. But other times we might be in a place where we're very comfortable. Irregardless of where you're at, whether it's desperation or just complacency or, or even comfort, sometimes we can make our place in life the thing that we idolize. The place that we're at, whether it's geographically or whether it's just circumstantially, we can make that place in life an idol. And oftentimes it tends to be when we're most comfortable that we, things at work are just clicking along and we're getting all the bids or maybe uh, we're, we're just really in a rhythm with teaching or, or maybe um, whatever the situation is, we're, we're doing so well and we love it and life is good and we'll do whatever we can to keep it there to make sure that we continue to make money or produce as a, as a company or, or whatever it is. And that becomes the thing that we grasp, the thing that we cling to, and the thing that we hold on to even more than God himself. And we recognize as we continue to grasp for it, as we continue to, to cling for it, that it never will satisfy. It feels good and it's a wonderful gift from the Lord when we enjoy the things that he's doing for us. But it's a terrible idol because it never will satisfy like God and God alone. So if you think back to that verse 7, talking about the breakers and the waves coming over, it actually is reminiscent of Jonah and his experience. Many of you may know his his story about how he was thrown overboard from this ship into the raging sea and how the waters were swirling about him. The breakers and the waves were coming over him and he was being pushed down further and further into the water, into the deeps. And seaweed actually was wrapping itself around his ankles and pulling him down and he cried out to God and God came and he rescued him. But it's interesting that Jonah and his account He says this from the Amplified Version. He says, Those who regard and follow worthless idols turn away from their living source of mercy and loving kindness. So it's interesting to think about when we put God, take God out of that number one place in our hearts, we actually are not just rejecting the living God, but we're actually rejecting what He offers us mercy, loving kindness. He is that true source of of life. Jeremiah the prophet talks about the same thing. In fact, God through the prophet Jeremiah says in verse in chapter 2 verse 13 he says, "For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters." And I love that thread of how God is that living water, how he is the only one that can satisfy us. It's all throughout scripture and it's throughout the message this morning. But they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns 
for themselves. Cisterns, basically what that is, is, is it's a carved out basin in a rock. All right, and may, maybe it's a big rock that they've been able to carve, whittle out this hollowed out area in which rainwater, rainwater would fall and it would fill this basin in the rock. Well, the problem with that system is that it's open. It's open, uh, open air for dust to blow across the surface and to collect on the surface of the water. And then, of course, you've got livestock that may come by and urinate nearby. Goats that climb on the rock and they pee into your water source. And so, of course, that water source becomes filthy and contaminated very quickly. And that's problematic. That's no longer fit for us to drink or to even really enjoy at all to any level. But then God goes on to say, he says, not only have they forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, but they've hewed out cisterns for themselves. And not only that, but these are broken cisterns that can hold no water. So you've got this basin in the rock that's full of contaminated water. And what's more, there is a crack in the rock in which the water has all leached out. And all you're left with is this gross, murky sludge at the basin of this rock. Who wants to drink that? But that's exactly what we are doing when we place these idols in our hearts. We forsake the living God. Forsake the one, the only one who can truly satisfy our hearts at our deepest level. So moving forward, we see in verse 9, he says, the psalmist says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Now, I want us to look at a couple observations here. One is that I love that the psalmist is so honest with God. I want us to be that way. I want us as a people to be honest and real with God. Pour out your heart to him. He wants you to communicate and share what is going on in your heart. If you are in desperation, much like this psalmist, if you're in a place where you are just frustrated or you're angry even, be real with God. He never chastises us for being real about our situation. Be real with him. Journal your thoughts. Pray your thoughts. Talk to him. But the other thing that he says, even in the midst of being real and asking these really deep and heavy questions, as he says, I say to God, my rock. You see, we can look at the rock in two different ways. One, the rock that God is in our hearts and our lives is he's this immovable, unchanging being in our lives. He is our rock, our anchor, even in the storms of life when the breakers are coming and hitting us and we're in desperation. He can be the one that we cling to because he himself is unchanging and our identity in him is unchanging. But also, as I think about and I contemplate where this psalmist may be, he's up in the mountains. It's very possible that he has been taken in captivity some scholars suggest that they may be in exile, going into exile because of their proximity from home and his desperate situation. But I want to say, uh, I speculate that it's possible that he's actually fled 
from potential captors. He's actually fled into the mountains to avoid being put into captivity. And he's crying out to God. And the rock that he calls God, he calls God his rock, but the rock that he's thinking about is the, high, the rock that he's hiding behind, that he is avoiding capture. He's avoiding his pursuers. We go on to see verse 10. He says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Now again, we don't know exactly. Nobody really understands. We can all speculate as to what his circumstance is. But if it's possible that he has fled from potential captors and he's tried to flee from being, uh, being taken, then it's very possible that he also went with many other people and they all fled, uh, at least maybe a group of them have fled into the mountains to avoid being held captive. And they are hiding out in the mountains, much like David did. And so as such, he is now with these people that he once led in procession to the house of God with joyful hearts and glad singing and all this worship. And now he's with those same people and it's very possible that they have all turned their back on God because they have given up hope. They've given up hope in God. And they, the ones that once were friends, have now become adversaries. And he says this, as with deadly wound in my bones, what hurts more than having a friend begin to taunt you? One that you were once close to begins to say these hurtful, harsh words. He says, my adversaries taunt me all day long. They say, where is your God? And they just continue to put that finger in the wound and they just continue to taunt. It could be foreign enemies, but it could also be that these very adversaries were once his closest friends. Regardless of that, whether, whether they were foreign invaders or people that he was once very close to, the reality is, is that one of the idols that we put in our hearts are people. And sometimes the people that are very close to us have incredible influence over us. In fact, even people that we dislike we give a lot of power to them and what they think of us. And they become idols in our hearts. And we put those people in our hearts and our lives in a, in a place that they really should not ever be. We put them on a pedestal above God. And we listen to them and they influence us to a point where we are so concerned and so caught up in what they think of us that they themselves become these false gods where we are constantly seeking their affirmation. We are constantly looking for pleasing them instead of pleasing God. Paul's letter to the Galatians is so convicting. He says in chapter one, verse 10, he says, am I pleasing God or am I pleasing man? Because if I'm pleasing man, I can't be pleasing God. I've got to focus on what is most important that we have got to put God in the place that he belongs because only he can satisfy us. People can be very fickle. People, opinions can sway, they can change. In fact, you please one person and another person is, dis, is dissatisfied. And so when we put people in that place where God 
and God alone should be, we begin to pursue a, a false God that will never be satisfied. We'll always be searching, grasping, groping for satisfaction. Only God can satisfy. The last two verses, I'm sorry, the last verse actually mirrors verse 5. And I love the fact that two times he says in this passage, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He's good self-talk here. He's talking through what he's dealing with, what he's struggling with. He's, he's bringing that to light. And in two different verses, he says this, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He, even in his desperation, is clinging to God. He says, God is his only hope. For us as believers, I want to challenge us with this, to consider what idols have we placed? Maybe it's even beyond the three that I mentioned here. What idols have we placed in our hearts that have taken the position in our hearts and lives that only God should be in? Because I say this because the reality, as I've been saying this morning, is that when we put that false God in God's place, that idol that we cling to, it's only going to drag us down. It's only going to make us want more. We're going to continuously just, just go after that with, with, with no effect, with no satisfaction. But when we put God where He and He alone needs to be, our hearts, our souls are satisfied at a deep heart level. And so what I want to encourage us to do is, is maybe put some practical things in our hearts, in our lives, in our, in our steps each day to constantly be mindful and to be intentional about reevaluating where are we every single day. Because I know for me, it's not just a daily thing. It's a moment by moment thing. Okay, wait a minute. What am I doing here? I'm putting this as first in my heart, and that is not what's going to help me. God alone. And so I've got to rearrange, got to recenter, reprioritize in my heart, and I need to do that constantly. So one of the things that I thought would be helpful is, what about when you take a drink, which you're probably doing pretty regularly throughout the day. What happens if you, when you take a drink, you remind yourself and have a moment to say, wait, what am I putting in my heart as first, right? When we, when we think about as the deer pants for those flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, so my soul yearns for you, O God. So when we take a drink, we remember that association of as we need water, so we need God. That we think and we re reevaluate where is God in my heart? Where is God in my life? Is He the one that I have placed as preeminent, as first, as superior in all things in my heart, in my life? And for myself, I need to ask the question Am I saying that in my mind, but living it out a little bit different in my heart? And that's a big 
big change. So as the deer pants for the water, so our souls yearn for God. Let's be a people that put God in that place because only he can satisfy. Well, I look forward to spending a little time with you guys out in the park here in just a couple minutes. We'll have some bottled water out there for you to enjoy and re, uh, you know, kind of reevaluate where God is in your hearts and lives. Be a great opportunity. Matt Morton's going to come up, our teaching pastor, and share a few announcements with us right after I pray. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this morning, for this time, for the opportunity to invest in your word and spend time seeing how we might put you as first. Lord, we know that that is what's best for us. We know that only you can satisfy. And we know that in our minds. I pray, Lord, that we live it out in our hearts. We thank you so much for the power of your spirit that enables us, empowers us to be able to live in such a way that you are first. I pray that you would reign in our hearts. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.